2: You're listening to The Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 214.
2: On today's show, we talk about a Mayan ballgame carving, Egyptian mummy tags, and a Hopewell site in Ohio.
3: Let's dig a little deeper, but not into a mound into the ground. (laughs) Welcome to the Archaeology Show. How's it going?
2: Good. In Arizona for the week, so it's been good.
3: Yeah, we're back in the country. Yeah. The United States country.
2: The United States country. Because
3: Mexico is also a country.
2: (laughs) Also a country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're just kind of hanging around Arizona, been in the Grand Canyon area, doing some beautiful hiking. So yeah, it's been great.
3: Yeah. It's been really fun. So we are going to do some news articles today Mm -hmm. and we're kind of all over the board with these things.
2: Yeah, we are. (laughs) There's no real
3: theme or anything like that.
2: Nope. Just some cool stuff that we saw in the news.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the first one here is from Archaeology Magazine and it's called Intact Ball Game Carving Discovered at Chichen Itza. Mm. And we've been to Chichen Itza.
2: We sure have. Yeah.
3: And we saw the ball court there.
2: We did. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about
3: ball courts a little bit later. I want to talk about the article first, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of define that. Yeah. For now, though, archaeologist Lizbeth Beatriz Mendesuti Perez. That's wow. a lot of names. It is. <laughs> Found the 13-inch diameter 85-pound stone marker.
2: Wow. Big. Yeah. And heavy. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's carved with images of a ball and two players surrounded by glyphic text. So the typical Mayan glyphs. Yeah. Yeah, her and her team think it could have been affixed to an arch at the entrance to the Casa Colorado Architectural Complex at Chichen Itza, mm-hmm. and dates to around 8900.
2: The player on the left wears a feathered headdress and a sash with flower-shaped adornment that looks like a water lily, so pretty. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, the other one's got protective gear, which I thought was interesting, and a headdress that's known in the Chichen Itza area as a snake turban.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm like,
3: that sounds probably like real snakes were used back then
2: so basically we've got two players in uniform kind of on this thing yes (laughs) at least in two different garments so maybe uniforms yeah I don't know (laughs)
3: if it was affixed to like an arch saying hey here's a ball court Uh I think it was a trading card an 85 oh, pound trading 85 card. 85 pound
2: trading card. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> collect, collect all 58. Oh my God, you heard it here yeah. first.
3: <laughs> anyway, well, if it was a trading card, you could collect all 58, probably all hundreds because there's ball games all over the place. Yeah. In this area, all the way down Guatemala. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just everywhere. Yeah. The ball game itself was played on a large stone court and involved players knocking around a rubber ball using their hips.
2: Which sounds completely ridiculous. Yeah. And it. Not not to be mean, but it looks a little bit ridiculous too. Like when you're looking at the video of it, like you're kind of throwing your hips out to like hip check a ball. <laughs> it's yeah, crazy. There's
3: a video we'll talk about in a little bit of people yeah. playing it, but it, it's had a, uh, and that's in the show notes. So if you want to watch that, yeah. there's a YouTube video in the show notes, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, the earliest date that, these ball courts have been dated to is about 1650 BCE
2: mm-hmm. and
3: it's been around for i mean forever
2: Yeah, I they mean, call it
3: the oldest continuously played sport in the world yeah yeah cuz it's cuz people have continued to play it mm-hmm. the game has another name we always call it the ball game when you hear about the mayan, it like a ball like, court
2: the mayan ball game yeah. yeah
3: but its actual name is ulama ulama yeah ulama okay. so it was a focal point of Mayan cities, like just about every city had one, mm-hmm. and its style and size and just adornments were a representation of wealth and power for that city.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Kind of like how sports arenas are today, a little bit, right? <sighs> yeah, like, I mean, I guess. The bigger, fancier sports arenas are in yeah. the bigger, fancier cities a lot of the time. So, yeah. yeah.
3: What we know of the history of the game comes from, I'm going to say a document called the Popol Vuh. Mm-hmm. I can't. I, I, I can never pronounce that thing right. Yeah, it's the oldest recounting of Mayan mythology in history, and it goes back centuries. It was actually maintained orally forever, mm, yeah. right, until 1550 when the Spanish Dominican friar Francisco Jimenez wrote it down in the language of. Kichi? Mm. I don't know how you pronounce it, and a parallel column in Spanish. Oh, so, so we had the translation.
2: Yeah, so you yeah. wrote this whole thing
3: down, learned the language, and mm-hmm. then translated it into Spanish. There's a whole story with that document and and what its history is. It, mm-hmm. it basically changed hands a few times after he died, and then it actually kind of got lost to time mm. in a collection it wasn't lost officially but like nobody really knew what it was, it was and where like it was
2: buried in a collection yeah. yeah
3: and then somebody else pulled it out and and then it was you know a couple other people found it and then somebody back like in the last century actually translated it again into english and published it a few times and it Mm -hmm. was published around the world and then kind of came out and it was this just really amazing history of that whole area yeah it's like kind
2: of like the rosetta stone i mean a little bit the americas but not really because we knew the language already but it Mm -hmm. to have it be the parallel the two languages together is, is yeah very very unique i think
3: yeah this game as i mentioned before when Rachel mentioned the video, has seen a resurgence, uh, specifically in the Mexican state of Sinaloa, mm-hmm. and it's been branching out. The, cool. In the video, you can see the guy who's kind of been the leading force behind it in the last five, six years. He's got this whole thing. There's a, there's a Facebook page, which I linked to here, that you can go to for the league that they've basically got around this. But there's men and women playing it. There's actually three different versions of the game that they play. Okay. And I don't know if that's historically accurate or not, because all the accounts I saw said that you do actually play it by uh, hitting it only with your hips the Mm -hmm. ball is thrown into the court and then you hit it with your hips you might say well sure if the ball's like in the air and people do like hip check the ball from the air Mm -hmm. we'll talk about the ball in a second but when it's on the ground and rolling i mean they literally just like throw their 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 like hips and their Mm -hmm. waist to the ground and a lot of times they're they're it's imagine like like a yoga pose or like something like that where you've got your hands down behind you and then your feet down in front of you with your legs bent, but your and your hip is kind of supported, like you're just like bringing it up.
2: Oh, I see. Yeah. And yeah. then you're just
3: like hip checking the ball, or sometimes you're just throwing yourself into it Yeah, and then hitting it with your hips.
2: That's insane.
3: I know. You really have to rely on your team members because you need some recovery time to just like get back up. Yeah. You know, it's well, not like and you can...
2: It's, I can't imagine that if you're trying to get the ball off the ground, you can get it very far or very high. Right. So you need somebody ready to well, keep here's, it going. Here is the
3: thing: it goes out of bounds a lot, and oh, when okay. it goes out of bounds, you throw you throw it back in. Okay. So it does spend a fair amount of time in the air because people are really good at this, and they might hit it, you know, off their hips from a, from an air shot, uh-huh. and then just kind of go back and forth a couple times in volleys, you know, uh-huh. until it hits the ground, and then they're trying is, to score.
2: And and what are they trying to score? Is it just like a, a zone at the end?
3: The scoring rules are so complicated. Okay. That it takes years to learn them. Okay. and Master them. Yeah, <laughs> even to today. They've they've refined a lot of the rules to make it a little simpler. Okay, but like the scoring rules in the in back in the day were ridiculous. Okay, and it said it was just it was not. In fact, there's a there's like a zone or a I didn't really understand it. There's like a zone or some kind of time frame or something during the game where like if you do something wrong, you could lose all your points. But the game could actually take days.
2: Oh wow! Yeah.
3: Um, nowadays they cap it at a few hours, but it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Now these balls. Are actually they were made of like liquefied latex that you can find down in the peninsula there, uh, down in Mexico and all around mm-hmm. that area. And it naturally, took, yeah, yeah, wow. both from like rubber trees.
2: Oh yeah, yeah right, it's rubber, right,
3: basically. Yeah. Um. So they they would put this thing together, and it, it involved all these folding and and creating, and it really took a skilled craftsman to create this thing. Mm-hmm. And these balls could be anywhere from like a softball size up to like a soccer ball size and weigh anywhere from a pound to like 10 pounds that's and you're insane. hitting these with your hips
2: <laughs> right? talk about bruising i know and they're oh still using those
3: kinds of balls today in the modern game and they said because of the amount of latex and the skill and difficulty in making them it could cost up to a thousand dollars to oh make my that gosh. ball
2: wow
3: yeah so it's just it's crazy and mm-hmm. you know they they wrap themselves in uh, i guess like a sash and kind of things and i'm mm-hmm. i'm willing to bet they're wearing like some padding on their hips too i don't know if that's allowed or yeah. not but i mean they're hitting these Things really hard, yeah. And that is a hit, yeah. Coming at you,
2: yeah. That would be bruising, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed.
3: So, anyway, that's pretty much it. We always say Maya ball games, but uh-huh. it really took place all over that peninsula, and like yeah. I said, all the way down to Guatemala. And you know, these were all in the same time frame, and in the highlands and the lowlands, and it was just known throughout the land. A little bit of history of the game, too, is there were two gods that were essentially playing around and and they had an argument mm-hmm. and to settle the argument they played this game and that that was kind of how the that's game that's like the
2: birth of the game yeah then. and yeah.
3: it was supposed to be like this battle between light and dark as well and it was this whole not necessarily just a game that people saw as a spectator sport but it really had ritualistic meaning mm-hmm. you know like who wins and who loses and oh
2: okay yeah there's a
3: lot of stuff around there about how the winning team would be like sacrificed and killed yeah. or the losing team would be yeah you, you know one that. of the two but there's a lot of variation in that count as well Mm -hmm. but either way it was really important to the people of the city and town that they lived in and it was seen as as something you know very special and a little bit ritualistic Mm -hmm. so
2: yeah that's really cool
3: yeah all right well also ritualistic is making mummies but and we've talked about mummies before but on this next article on the other side of the break we're going to talk about a cool way that we're using things associated with the mummies to look at and reconstruct the climate of the ancient Mediterranean. Back in a minute.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer.
4: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
3: Welcome back to episode 214 of the Archaeology Show. And now we're going to talk about wooden tags. <laughs> I imagine these is like yeah. toe, like death toe tags but probably not.
2: I know. Yeah. I know. That was the first thing I thought when I was reading this too. I was like, oh, this is like the Egyptian version of a toe tag. It's yeah. like a little bit sad.
3: I mean, it really is. But also
2: functional, right? right. Like you sure. you kind of you, you need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so this article is called Mummies Provide the Key to Reconstruct the Climate of the Ancient Mediterranean and it was published in... Fizz.org in fizz.org. Yep. So Egyptian mummies would have had wooden tags associated with them after the person had passed away and they were sent to the embalmers basically as a way of identifying who this person was, right?
3: Yeah, because it wasn't just pharaohs and important people that were made into mummies and embalmed. It right. was just their practice of burial. Right. Like a yeah. lot of people were. Any yeah.
2: Anybody could have been. And yeah. And once the person is, you know, all wrapped up in bandages and the embalming process has happened or whatever, then you don't want the embalmer to mix up Who goes to who and (laughs) like which body is which and stuff like that. So it kind of is a dual purpose, like identify who it is when you send it to the embalmer. And then Mm -hmm. after they've been all wrapped up and it's just a a mummy that you can't identify anymore, it also is an identifying marker. So that's what they were used for.
3: Yeah. They would have had the names of the deceased on these tags plus the names of their parents and sometimes a little religious message, just Mm -hmm. some, you know, some information on there to say, hey, you know, this is Joe Farrow. And, You know, he's yeah. his parents are these and, and he was a cool guy. So
2: Yeah, they gave a couple examples in the article and the first one is <laughs> Pycris, the defunct son of Bessus and Senpnauth. I don't know if I said that last one right. So as always, excuse our terrible pronunciations. But that one, I'm like, the defunct son? Yeah. Like because defunct. he's dead, so he's defunct, or I don't know. was he, he defunct before he died? and they were just reluctantly claiming <laughs> him i don't know but poor pycris yeah pycris pycris yeah. yeah
3: another was let's see Sempetesi, daughter of penehib yeah. yeah so again just they could be very simple yeah yeah, yeah. so these are different names man
2: i know they're they're tough to pronounce <laughs> i have always thought it was such a beautiful language though like mm-hmm. or maybe not beautiful but the way the sounds flow together are just really cool so anyway Yeah. So we have these wooden tags, right? And what can you do with wood?
3: You can do lots of stuff with (laughs) wood. You
2: can date the tree rings. So they're kind of looking at other ways to use these tags to find out information about the climate and the area of the mummies that they were found with. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a group of Geneva-based researchers that want to see if climate fluctuations might have contributed to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Like we always say, but they want to have like actual physical evidence of that. I think it's known mm-hmm. or it's always been said that that was part of it, but they're looking for the actual hard evidence. And they're so they're specifically looking at the time period when Egypt was governed by Rome.
3: Yeah. So these rings we're talking about, I mean, these are, when you look at the article, these are like flat pieces of wood, like a paddle mm-hmm. almost and not very big. They they, no. they don't look like they're that big at all. Maybe a few inches long and a few inches wide and thin. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like a wooden tag that yeah. you would imagine. It's right?
2: exactly like a paper tag, but yeah. out of wood instead of paper.
3: But like any piece of wood, including maybe even a table or something that's sitting in your home, you can see the, the grain in the wood, they call it, you know, mm-hmm. and you say, oh, look at how beautiful that is. Mm-hmm. Those are the rings that were created when the tree was made. Right. 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 When the tree was growing, I mm-hmm. guess. And so you can you can see those rings and the thicknesses of those rings, even on polished cut pieces of wood. Yeah, you, you still know?
2: see those concentric yeah. lines which represent the rings. Right,
3: right. Now When we do this tree ring dating, this is called dendrochronology. Mm -hmm. And why it's not called arborchronology, I couldn't tell you, but it's called dendrochronology. Not at (laughs)
1: all. I
0: can't
4: remember
3: why it's called that. Yeah. But either way, chronology, obviously dating, time, things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, they can't date them directly, but when they look at the thickness of the rings compared with the thickness of the rings around them, it can indicate good and bad years from just that analysis. Mm -hmm. For example, good years are indicated by broad rings or wider rings indicating that the tree grew more during that year. Yep and skinnier wings can be evidence of years of drought right? you know because they're you know they didn't grow they're as constricted much. Yeah. yeah now with dendrochronology you can't just look at these and say oh well this represents you know 1292 you yeah. just don't know that right, right. so you have to just have something else to align your dendrochronological time frame mm-hmm. right so one of the ways they could do that is radiocarbon dating but they're trying to resist that because they'd have to cut pieces, cut pieces away from it. And Mm -hmm. they don't want to do that to any of these. So they're trying to figure out other ways to do it. And that could be something along the lines of identifying somebody on one of these tablets Mm or one of these things and and really using some other resource where they're mentioned somewhere else with an actual date. And Mm -hmm. then they can start aligning these, but you know,
2: yeah. Like what they're doing right now is that, they they're taking all these individual samples that they have and they want to kind of just get the spread right yeah. so they're and they want they want different tree species because different tree species have different responses to different climate things mm-hmm. you know and then you've always you're always going to have outliers where there's individuals that just had a different response to something for some reason or maybe they had an individual stress that happened to that tree specifically so yeah. so basically they just want to like create a bigger picture and, and they need a, a big sample to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fortunately, there's thousands of these tags in museums all across the world, basically. Yeah.
3: yeah, there's lots of them. Yeah. One of the researchers, Francois Blondel, has analyzed a group of about 300 of these tags. Yeah. And what he's trying to do is, again, identify where the tree ring sequences overlap with one another. So yeah. if he sees a... It's almost like a barcode. Yeah. You know, he's looking at these things and saying, where does this... Plank match up with this plank, yeah. You know, so then I can say all these are together, yeah. You know?
2: And in my head, he's got like a pile of them, like laid out in front of him, and he's going yeah. doo, 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 and like moving yeah. around. But it's actually not quite like that. They can take these images of them and then use the images to line them up, probably using computer programs and stuff too to like sort of analyze the the rings and then figure out this sequence and the overlapping mm-hmm. and see which match which and start to create this climate picture. Yeah. And and they have an outline basically that starts with like, you know, a few good years here, and then they have a succession of droughts and like you said, there's no years assigned to these yet. Yeah. So that's gonna be the next step is to figure that out
3: yeah they're hoping through analysis to find, like I said before, something with a date on it mm-hmm. or something not with a date on it necessarily, but that is dateable. yeah, through context,
2: but there could be an actual date on it because yeah, I mean, these be. are these are inscribed, right? So like yeah. there there's this hope, I think, in the back of their minds that they're going to pull out a tag that has, like, I don't know, Imhotep, born right. <laughs> born this year, died this year, or something mm-hmm. like that. And I mean, I don't know how likely it is. And also, when you have a written date like that, it's you kind of have to take things with a grain of salt, too, because it's, like, human. So
1: yeah.
2: how how much can you trust what's written down or whatever? But, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're hoping for that to happen because, yeah, like you said, the next step is to do radiocarbon dating, uh, carbon-14. And it's just... When they're trying to get, they want like a year-to-year map of the climate of this area to see how it might have impacted the fall of Rome, essentially. And they need that to be specific and detailed to the year. So the error range for carbon-14 is just too big for Mm -hmm. them to really feel comfortable with the dates that they're going to get from that, probably. That's what they're concerned about. So they're hoping for something else to be at least corroborating, probably. Yeah.
3: Plus the destructive nature of carbon yeah, dating. Yes,
2: of course. That. Yeah. That's definitely a problem, too. So, yeah, they don't want to do that. I'm not sure how many of the museums that own the pieces, the specimens <laughs> that they're studying, are going to give them permission to, you know, right. destroy them. So, I mean, yeah, just take a little, little piece off the back. Yeah. <laughs> I, do you know how big of a piece you need to do? It's
3: microscopic. Oh, it's really?
2: Yeah. If it's very tiny, I mean, they might be able to get permission. Yeah, it's but still destructive, though. It is still destructive. Yeah, it's not I know. a lot. Yeah. So
3: but, I mean you're literally counting atoms. So yeah. you know, that's it's really small. Yeah. You know, and, really and
2: to get a date and they mentioned this in the article, but to get a date that they can start trusting a little bit, they'd have to do it to like a bunch of mm-hmm. a bunch of these tags from the same like section where the rings overlap right. so that they can get you know 10 different tags that give the same date and then they can feel comfortable saying okay our time period starts right here with this date but yeah. they don't have that yet so they're still working on it
3: yeah unfortunately the ones we do know dates for like the big pharaohs and stuff like that they didn't have to have a tag on them no, when they were sent to the embalmers No, they, really they, knew who they were
2: they probably had a personal embalmer that was just like on standby <laughs> yeah. for the moment that they died and like didn't work with other mummies and right. wouldn't have had to wait in line for <laughs> for embalming
3: like rich people that have like a panic button so they can push it so they their, their cryogenist can show up immediately and freeze <laughs> right. their head.
2: Oh, right, yeah. totally.
3: Yeah, that's modern embalming. Yeah, 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 definitely so. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for that one. Pretty cool. It, it, interesting to see what they come out with that because, you know, we can tell a lot from these remains, but I never really thought about looking at climatological you yeah. know, changes. But yeah. you know, there's often wood found in these drier environments. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can tell stuff, but you just don't have enough. But I didn't really realize how many of these things there were. Yeah. And I never really heard of them before. So that's really cool. This like
2: common almost household yeah. item that everybody would have had to use at least once in their life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting use of that artifact.
3: All right. Well now we're gonna go over to Ohio, another place that you and I have worked. Yeah. And near probably where this happened, where we're going to talk about because we worked around some, some Hopewell mm-hmm. stuff. But we'll get into that and this CRM project on the other side of the break.
0: Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
3: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 214 of the Archaeology Show. And we're talking news articles. And this one is a cool CRM project. Mm Mm-hmm. From Newark, Ohio.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It caught my eye because, you know, we worked in Ohio. I don't know if we've mm-hmm. ever mentioned that before on the podcast, but we did a, you know, a phase two many, many, many years ago in yeah. Ohio. So we kind of worked in this area. Yeah. So the article is called Archaeologists Discover 2,000-Year-Old Dwelling Site of Hopewell Native Americans in Ohio. And it took me a second to kind of track down this article. It's written by Jack Wolf of the thereportingproject.org. But it's one of those kind of things where it can be shared around. So I found mm-hmm. it on USA Today. And I think it was on like uh, Heritage Daily and maybe a couple other places. Yeah. So you can find it in a lot of different places. But the original one is the thereportingproject.org. And I... Cannot even say how much I love this article. (laughs) It is the most realistic reporting of a CRM project, except for one detail, which we can talk about later on. But it's the most realistic reporting of a CRM project that I've ever read. And it's not boring. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like everything about it was so well done.
3: Yeah, it really went into some detail on, you know, different techniques and and stuff like that it was weird to hear all of the stuff we're used to hearing as far as measurements in feet and inches
2: i know i thought that was so weird too i converted some of it to meters like without even thinking about it when i was writing the notes for the article but yeah
3: anyway this all happened because of a a bridge basically a 190 year old bridge in newark ohio that was abruptly and unexpectedly closed uh, a few months ago because it was deemed unsafe
2: yeah and this is actually the one thing that I, is hard for me to put into context. I don't know why they talk about that in this article, because the work on this site actually started in 2018. And it was in anticipation of replacing that bridge because right. they knew that it needed to be replaced. And they actually created a whole new like traffic path for the bridge. And it wasn't going to go over the old bridge location anymore. So this site is actually over... And you can see it on the map if you kind of – well, they don't actually call it out in the map in the article. You have to kind of like look at their pictures and yeah. look at where they say it's supposed to be. And then you can kind of see where it's supposed to be like right near the roundabout that they're putting mm-hmm. in is. is right, it's right in there. But the closure of the bridge has nothing to do with that. It's just they're, they happen to happen in conjunction with each other, I guess. So Yeah.
3: And, and the reason they started working on this a few years ago, I mean, these – construction projects, especially municipal ones, I mean, they take forever to get in the to get planning underdone. They done. do, yeah. You know, so in order for them to even put together an environmental study to get permission to even create a new bridge. Yeah. They had to do archaeology. Yeah. It's just one of the things that has to be yeah. done. Yeah. I so, mean
2: it's National Historic yeah. Preservation Act. Like it was it it's just required that they do this. So yeah. So they've been working on it for a couple of years now, but they are wrapping up excavations. It mm-hmm. looks it sounds like excavations are done, and they're in the analysis and writing and reporting portion of it. so right. but it is good timing because they had to close that other bridge because it was just to the point of being unsafe. I guess there's right. a lot more traffic going over it now, these huge trucks. so they just they're putting a temporary bridge over the top of it so that they can keep using it until the new bridge is ready. but yeah, that's that's where they're they're right. at with that and the CRM company doing the work is Lahan and Associates out of Columbus,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and they're the, they're working in Newark, Ohio, which is where this is going on.
3: Yeah, and this is all north of where we worked. We worked out of well, it wasn't out of Cincinnati, but it was just to the east of Cincinnati. Yeah. and Columbus is more up and to the up right in, of Cincinnati. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Northeast.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: So, uh, and more in the middle of the state. Yeah. But the Ohio mound builders right mm-hmm. that's i i I've got a book called the Ohio Mound Builders yeah. I bought when we worked in Ohio, yeah. and just the mounds that are there it's not just Ohio but it's largely Ohio, yeah, you know it obviously surround it goes into the surrounding areas, mm-hmm. but these earthen mounds and these earthen earthworks, like the Newark earthworks which are right outside right near here
4: mm-hmm.
3: were Again, part of the Hopewell culture, and they are some of the largest earthworks in the world.
2: Yeah, they're you know? huge yeah. and extensive for it's, sure.
3: It's amazing, and yeah. it's just right now they just kind of look like some of them have shapes to them, like the yeah. Serpent Mound, you know, down yeah. in Ohio, and and some other famous ones. And you know, sometimes they have these intricate shapes, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just mounds, and mm-hmm. but they're they're grown over with grass and vegetation and all that stuff, and could be hard to see in certain ca- circumstances. But because there's been such extensive farming and Plowing, uh, plowing and, yeah. and just living here for the last three or four hundred years by modern Europeans, uh, European descendants. Mm-hmm. The Native Americans really didn't do any of that. You know, they, I don't know. They wouldn't have intentionally destroyed any of this stuff or even right. known what it was for. Right. But they had no reason to do that because they didn't really practice agriculture in that way. Yeah. So when agriculture came to the New World, they started destroying mounds pretty yeah, heavily. Yeah,
2: they did. Yeah. I mean, they saw them as a problem, right? Like this They're mound in the, in the middle of their field and they yeah. needed to plant. That's yep. why you'll sometimes see like planted fields in the in this big mound yeah. up out of the middle of it, because you know, back in the day, they they just wanted them out of their way, or they moved, they worked around them.
3: Yeah, they went through all the phases of archaeology on this too. So during the initial testing, they dug test pits and and we, what we call delineating the yeah. positive ones uh, to narrow in on the site. Yeah, and you know, delineation sometimes. It depends on where you work and how you do it, but sometimes we call it like a cruciform delineation yeah. where you're, we call them shovel tests a lot. Some people call them shovel pits or shovel, yeah. te- shovel test pits, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. But you're basically digging on a grid, a big grid, mm-hmm. and if you find a positive one, you basically cut the distance yeah. between the positive one and your next negative one in all four directions, mm-hmm. and then... If one of those is positive, then you cut the distance again. You don't go in. You don't keep cutting the distance. You just do it maybe once or twice until mm-hmm. you you really nail down. Okay, there's something here. Yeah, and on the next phase, that's one of your areas of focus.
2: Yeah, you're trying to find the edges of whatever the concentration yeah. of artifacts is that you found, or if you get. Real lucky. I'm not sure "lucky" is the right word, actually. But if you get lucky and find a feature, mm-hmm. hopefully you don't go through the middle of it and completely destroy it because it could that, be hard to see in a shovel test. It would be hard to see in a shovel test, yeah. but yeah. But the this article, I, I swear, they did such a good job of it. They talked mm-hmm. about how they they were at I think 50 foot intervals. I'm not sure what that would be in meters, right? Yeah. And then they they dropped it to 25 when they yeah. were trying to narrow in on the site Probably concentration and edges, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so really, really neat. So anyway, they got to the point where they found the primary site that was significant that they needed to do excavation work on. Mm -hmm. And it's located in the front yard of a house (laughs) that is going away, obviously, Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the intersection of Reddington Road and Thornwood Drive. And that's just west of the Old Bridge. And in the article... That we link to. If you look at the map, you can find Reddington Road and you can find Thornwood Drive. It's more of a curve right now. It's not really an intersection, mm-hmm. but that you can kind of see on the map. There's like a White House there. There's two two White House buildings, I think, yeah. and it's like right in that area. And you can you can see it on the aerial, even though it's not really like pointed out. But it's, it's actually, isn't it shocking to you how much information they're releasing about this?
3: Uh, not really, because this should all be public information. It should be.
2: It should be, for sure. Yeah. But but CRM companies are often so secretive. Well, and I was... A, because they have to be, because they have contracts and non-disclosures and blah, 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 blah. I know they have to be, but... but that's more for private projects.
3: For yeah, these public works projects... I guess
1: that's what it is. This it's, has
3: been in the planning phase. Yeah. They would have had to have released the... You know, not necessarily the details of the report, but the mm-hmm. fact that stuff was found and yeah. the mitigation is going to cost this much. It's got to be voted on. Yeah. You know, the plans go right through a couple of houses. They had to buy those. Yeah. yeah. That takes They've got time. like
2: X's on them and the <laughs> yeah. on the aerial image. So, yeah, like, they, yeah. That's
3: under imminent domain. It's yeah. The, the greater good is going to be served by having this new bridge and this road re- realignment. Yeah. Therefore, your house is yeah. going to be sacrificed.
2: Yeah, totally. So,
3: but they have to offer you. Fair market value for the property. Of course. Yeah. You can't gouge them. Yeah. But they have to offer you that kind of money. Yeah. But then they got to deal with the house itself too, which could be, depending on how old it is, it might have some asbestos, asbestos, lead paint. Yeah. Who knows, right? So there's all kinds of things that have to be taken into account.
2: Yeah, for sure.
3: But one of the studies that they did to help find things, and archaeologists like to not dig in the ground if they don't have to because yeah, it's expensive it's it destructive and it's just like takes a long time so if yeah. we can use some subsurface non-destructive archaeology a lot of that is getting better and better and better over time it's and great no
2: like not quite no longer the days of yeah. empty test units but like right. i've dug a lot of empty test units
1: i know in uh-huh. my
2: archaeology days and boy they just like break your soul a little right. bit.
3: So. <laughs> now, all subsurface techniques fall under the heading of geophysical survey. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I took a really cool class with a really cool name in grad school called shallow geophysics mm-hmm. because you can get deep geophysics, which they use with mining. In fact, we used yeah. to do monitoring where they had these big trucks that would come out and then they would Pound on the ground with yeah. one truck, and then hundreds and hundreds of feet away, there were other monitoring and sensing equipment, and they would drop these these things in all these directions, and the reflections back from these poundings, they would be a mile under the earth, right. and they could tell what was down there and basically That's map so all cool. the minerals. That is yeah. so cool. That's deep geophysics. Yeah,
2: but, which you don't need to use with, no. with human you know deposits. <laughs>
3: well, some people would say that our history goes back way farther and we should be digging deeper. But that's we a whole we're other not argument. talking
2: about those people. So go on. <laughs> anyway,
3: the geophysical survey they employed here was called was using a magnetic gradiometer. And we typically call this magnetometry. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the Earth has a magnetic field. We know that when that magnetic field hits certain types of minerals Mm -hmm. and and metal objects and high density objects it alters the magnetic field in a way that can be sensed by a magnetic Mm gradiometer, right and gradiometer is just a measuring tool right Mm -hmm. so it's measuring fluctuations in the earth's magnetic field and it's very sensitive very slight fluctuations and it's just you know really detailed work yeah yeah
2: and in this case, I think what they were really wanting to use it for was to kind of try to help lead them in the direction of finding subsurface deposits like hearts. Yeah. Because that change in soil made by like basically burnt burnt stuff, burnt soil, burnt stuff in the soil could be detected by using the magnetic gradiometer.
3: Yeah. Hearts can be a, a buildup of carbonized material just over sometimes many years. So you're going to use the same spot if this is a, if this is a village or a hamlet mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, they're going to use the same one over years and years and years. And they get, depending on the clay content of the soil too, which there's a lot of clay in the soil out here, it almost gets like a... Like a uh, hardened. Yeah. And then it's just hardened, mm-hmm. hardened, hardened, hardened. Mm-hmm. And this has a, a massive signature when yeah. you're trying to look for I it. I
2: imagine it's quite obvious yeah. when when the preservation conditions are just right. right.
3: I think you could probably also see parts like this with like ground penetrating radar, but I'm not really sure. I
2: think you probably can. Yeah, if it's yeah. a dense enough object yeah. for that. So. I wonder what made them choose this method of, over GPR. Right. They, they don't go quite... in I mean, it's a great article, but it doesn't go quite into right. <laughs> detail like that, but... So, yeah, they they had all this data from the phase one, basically, they called mm-hmm. it. It was the data from the shovel tests and then the delineation of the site and then the magnetic gradiometry. And then they presented all of this information to the Ohio Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. the Licking County Historical Societies and any affiliated Native American groups and all of those people together. You know, there was a partnership, and they made an excavation plan together. Yeah. Which sounds like they had a really good working relationship. At least this article makes it sound that way. Hopefully, they did.
1: Right.
3: One of the things they did on this excavation was what the article said is a new soil anal- soil analysis method. i will talk about that first, but uh-huh. we'll talk about that in a second. But they took samples about every ten feet, so three meters or yeah. so, a little over three meters. Yep. And. They were measuring the phosphate levels. So they took these soil samples, sent them off, and then the phosphate levels were measured within these. Now, phosphate levels, elevated concentrations of phosphate equals human activity. Right. And I've read about this technique being used, I mean, for years now. Yeah. uh, Largely in academic settings. I
2: think that's why they said new is because it's not common for CRM to do this, but they did in this case.
3: Well, and one of the reasons it wouldn't be common for CRM firms is, I mean, how often have we just found small expressions of human activity and not like long-term expressions? Because that's what you find with this. If Uh you think you have some sort of village site that was a long-term occupation, not just like a seasonal one where they were there for one season Uh and didn't ever come back, but long-term occupation, the byproducts of just humans living there there's all kinds of things that do this you could get really into that we don't we're not going to do that in this podcast but it builds up these phosphate levels in the ground Mm -hmm. where humans have lived and again we've known about that for a while
2: yeah Okay, cool. I I wasn't really sure what exactly, yeah, or why the phosphate levels would indicate human activity, but it sounds mm-hmm. like it's just the stuff that people do causes the ele- the elevated it, levels. Yeah, so. I mean it
3: has to do with the hards the yeah the high concentration of animal bones that are that are e- eaten and uh-huh. processed and all those sorts of materials there and yeah. sometimes even burying your dead there just all these things contribute all to, of it together. You know this yeah. whole thing so. Yes. Well,
2: it's good that the results were conclusive that they had human activity because yeah. they were ready to move on to excavation from from that point. Yep. Yeah. They excavated twenty four one by one meter test units, which I'm pretty sure they said three <laughs> foot by three foot yeah. in the article. But like you can see, it's it's textbook excavation in the yeah. in the images in the article. So they were definitely doing one by one meter units and those units yielded pottery oven fragments and stone tools including the kind of most coveted one i guess is the bladelet cores
3: yeah bladelet cores are just core well cores essentially are the middle part of say a nodule of stone mm-hmm. and you know flintknapping is the practice of taking flakes off of cores mm-hmm. basically or, or just source material if it's if it's already ready to go, and then shaping that into something you're going to use, mm-hmm. whether it's a something to scrape hides or an actual arrowhead or something like that, or spear tip or you know dart point, something like that. We call them projectile points because you don't know what kind of projectile it is. Right. Well, you usually do by its size, but to encompass the whole realm of those things, we call them projectile points. Yeah. Yeah, but the bladelets are the the smaller blades that just come off of these, and bladelet cores are really cool because it looks like a cylinder essentially. Yeah. Because you've got. The end of the core has been prepared, and then the bottom of the core has been prepared, and then you're basically using, you know, pressure and hammering to take off these blades off the side all mm-hmm. the way around it.
2: Yeah, these like long skinny things yeah. that look just like blades, just like yeah. what they call them.
3: Yeah, it's really cool.
2: Yeah, it's super neat. Yep. And the Hopewell culture in this area is known for using the small flint bladelets from a bladelet core, mm-hmm. and they're the material. The source material is mined from the Flint Ridge quarries, which are east of Newark. Yeah. And Flint is chert, right? Yeah, it's so, basically
3: a kind of chert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they found 23 unique features, including post hole stains, which indicates the presence of structures. And post hole stains are just a really common thing in this area yeah. that help identify that people were here for a longer period of time. Because mm-hmm. that it's literally like you dig a hole for a post. Yeah. And we could see this in, you know, modern ranches where there's fence posts. Yeah, You know, sure. where there, old wooden posts were replaced by metal posts or something like that. that. Where that old wooden post was, I mean, a lot of times... They don't get to this point, but if the post sits there for long enough and eventually just like degrades into nothing, mm-hmm. it leaves a mark on the soil. Yeah. It looks like dirt. It does. And just a darker dirt. Yeah. But it's essentially a post hole.
2: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like the concentration of vegetation, which is basically what, you know, a yeah. tree a tree is, leaves a really dark like perfectly circular in a lot of cases. Sometimes. Hole.
3: Yeah. And we don't actually call them post holes when we find them Mm -hmm. because it's not a hole. Yeah. It's, it's a post mold. Yes. It's a mold of the post. Yeah. It's it's almost a cast of the post. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely.
3: So it's kind of like how fossilization works. The bone's not there anymore, but there's a rock in its place that looks exactly like the bone. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
2: It's, It's exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. So another type of feature that they found pretty commonly was the hearth, like we said. and what I thought was really cool about these is that some of them had associated earthen ovens mm-hmm. and they would create these ovens by digging a hole, lining it with stones, and then you build a fire inside of it basically yeah. to sort of amplify that heat. yeah, so I thought that was that was one of the cooler things I'd heard of. yeah, that's pretty neat. yeah
3: I just wonder how somebody figured that out. They're like, they have like, there's rocks in their fire pit and...
2: fire cracked rock, right? Yeah, well, and then
3: they went and touched yeah. the rock and they're like, damn, that's hot. Oh,
2: oh how oh, they hey. originally... Fi- yeah, yeah maybe we can use this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's put a whole
3: bunch of them in there yeah. and just stay hot.
2: yeah <laughs> Yep.
3: So, yeah, the... I, I'd never actually heard of this before, but they said the settlements in this area in the article are often referred to as Hamlets. Maybe yeah. that's a local thing, but Hamlet isn't like one of the common societal levels it's just what they happen to call the the Hopewell small villages small
2: villages yeah yeah, yeah. i hadn't heard that before in this country you hear about it in like europe i think sure. like hamlet is a pretty common term for mm-hmm. a small a small village but yeah that's what they're calling it and it's really important to have this site and to excavate sites like this, I know it's not as like sexy as a mound site, you know, mm-hmm. but this is like how the everyday life of a all person would, would have been, you yeah. know, making, making stone ovens and cooking whatever they cooked and building structures with posts. These sites are are so important. And when you start thinking about what you can learn about the, the life of a villager, it's, it's really right. cool, too. It's
3: kind of similar to our last article where you're looking at a whole bunch of examples of something and you're trying to overlap where they intersect. So mm-hmm. you find all these little hamlets, so to speak, and you intersect where these things have similarities where they have differences and you can even start to look at like regional differences yeah. you know, like the Hopewell yep. in this area did things a little bit different than the Hopewell yep. in this area Yeah, you know and with enough examples of this you can start figuring that out
2: yeah you just can all of a sudden fill in yeah. this picture of who these people were and and what they did but you, it's you can't do it with just one you need all of them like you said yeah. so yeah
3: there weren't any specific dates mentioned in the article, but there, I'm sure there are. They were, I'm uh, sure there yeah. will be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with that many
2: hearts, they're, I'm easily going to be able to do Crabin' sure.
3: 14. Well, and they found so. tools and all kinds of stuff. So, Yeah. yeah. Um, but the Hopewell culture generally dates to about 100 BCE to 500 CE, so about yeah. a 600-year span. Yeah. And again, they didn't really like go anywhere. It's just that's where the cultural definition of what became yeah. the Hopewell Changed enough to where we could recognize it as something different around 100 BCE and then yeah. changed into something else around 500 CE.
2: Yeah, exactly. I'm sure yeah. there's still technically descendants in the, oh, the native sure tribes today. Yeah. So, but you know, we as scientists have to put labels on things just to make it easier to quantify what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So, the, that's the age range for Hopewell right now.
3: <laughs> yeah, they're, as you said, done with excavation and doing analysis, which could take months, but. We'll likely get some dates and some more information yeah. later. I'm pretty sure I've heard of Andy Sewell before, too, the archaeologist oh, yeah. in charge of this.
2: Oh, I forgot to mention him earlier, yeah. but yeah. yeah. And
3: if, if Andy's listening to this or anybody that happens to work <laughs> in Ohio that knows him, yeah. maybe you can come on and, and mention Ta- yeah. some other stuff about what was found and some of their techniques and maybe yeah. some stuff
2: that wasn't published in the article. Yeah, because this article is super well written about like the methods and what yeah. they did and why they were doing it. But it is a little bit light on... The actual artifacts and the actual like layout of the village and that kind of stuff. So getting some more detailed information there would be would be really cool.
3: Yeah, I mean they can share the maps now that that's all going to be basically dug up and a roundabout and bridge put in. So yeah, totally. (laughs) Just like a site we talked about that we worked on up in Washington, it was almost the exact same thing. It was a roundabout was put in, but not for a bridge, but for a a highway realignment. Yeah, or a bypass, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, and they were definitely some houses that lost out on that. Little project. They did. But, but uh, yeah, I yeah, found a lot of cool stuff because of that. Yep. So, All right. Well, that's it for this episode. We will be back next week with something else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.
3: Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archepodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
4: ba 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 Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.